Ahoy! Welcome to the podcast. I'm Greg. I'm Alicia. We got two delicious, very different looking beers in front of us, and that must, and it does mean that it's time for another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. How are you today? I'm great. How doing, are you doing? I'm doing great as well, and uh, I'm really looking forward to trying this beer in front of me. That looks really, really tasty and creamy and delightful. It does. I've got this beer called Too Juicy from Two Roads IPA. I'm branching out from my normal umbrella of safety that has been blossomed by the Stone Brewing Company. And uh, I'm sheltering the storm and I'm going to try this new beer out. It looks, it's got a really cool can and it's actually got, uh, almost looks like Tesla coils or something in the background, which I just noticed, which is pretty cool. And the beer, it looks gorgeous. It's supposed to be like this hazy IPA and it's just this very nice golden juicy looking type of beer. Too juicy. Too juicy. Let's check it out. It's an 8.2%. Damn. Is it as juicy as it looks? It's juicy, but it's not the juiciest. Really? Yeah. Is it It warm? almost has a... It, it feels like it's got juice, and then it tastes like paper. I mean, oh, I, I used to eat a lot of paper when I was a kid, so I know what it tastes yeah, like. Yeah, me too. You want to try? Yeah. What a bummer. It looks so beautiful. It does. It smells really good, too. I'm just spoiled. You know what? It's definitely... It's definitely juicy, but it kind of, it's a little boring, yeah. It almost tastes like watered-down orange juice, just yeah. a little bit. Like, it, it doesn't taste bad. It's good. No, it's, it's like dr- a... It's drinkable, but it I'd just... I'd say it's like a summerish beer, I guess. Yeah, it, it honestly doesn't even taste like beer. No. That's a bummer. I'm sorry. It happens. You know, I just took a second sip, and it seems like the more the more you drink, the better it tastes. But it's definitely, it's not what I would expect for an 8% IPA, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, we gotta try, right? Gotta try new things. (laughs) At least it's drinkable. What do you got? I have yet another porter from the Smog City Brewing Company. And this one is a coffee porter. It's got a really cool cracked out robot on the front of the bottle who is like, looks like he's just been pounding coffee. He's got an empty coffee pot, a coffee cup spilling everywhere, and it looks like a bottle of beer and coffee beans just flying out in every direction. Cool. Yeah. And this is a 6%, so not too crazy. All right. Oh, it says it's aged on locally roasted fair trade organic coffee. Nice. All right, let's give it a try. Oh, my goodness. Before I try it, you have to smell this. Okay. That smells amazing. Mm, yeah, that's nice. Oh, damn. Wow, when they say coffee, they're not kidding around. Can I try it? Yeah, that is definitely coffee. That's good. Yeah. We've been getting some good porters lately. Yeah, the porters have been killing it. I just, that uh, bottle, the artwork on it, looks like it was highly inspired by Ralph Steadman. Who's that? That's the guy that worked, uh, he's most famous for working with Hunter S. Thompson. Hmm. Oh, there's another brewery that uses um Yeah, he, they actually work, use right? this. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I actually... I'm trying to think, uh, of, it's something dog, I think. Flying dog Flying dog, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. They use his artwork. Um, oh, but that cool. looks a little bit, it looks inspired by it. It's not him. It does look like it, yeah. Oh, and he's got hops in his eyes, the little robot. There's a lot going on in this picture. <laughs> <laughs> the complicated robot. It's so hard to find new beers to try without like solely judging what the bottle or the can looks like. I really have to take the time to read the description and read what's in it and the flavors. But for this one, I specifically bought it because of the bottle. I honestly do that most of the time. I mean, that's how I got into the stone in the first place. Yeah. Part of the reason. And, uh, you know, I'm not one for judging a book by its cover, but I definitely will pick a beer by its cover. I learned that the hard way with the Artifacts one because I had a boring ass can and it was the worst beer ever. (laughs) No, and you know what? I There's been a lot of beers that I picked up solely just because like, you know what? That's fucking cool. And I'm going to give you guys my money because I want to check it out. I appreciate people putting effort into presenting their product and promoting uh, artists and just adding a little bit extra. 
Me too. Wow, that is really good. Yeah, I've, that's a nice beer. I'm I've jealous. really been enjoying the porters. So we are covering one of your favorite horror movies, Jaws from 1975. Not just mine. I think it's on a lot of people's top. Definitely. Top ten. Definitely. I happily watch this movie at least once a year. Easily. It's the perfect summer horror movie. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's almost like the horror equivalent of the Shawshank Redemption, where it's like if it's on, I can watch it. Nice. Like yeah. back in the day, like we don't watch, you know, we don't have cable TV anymore. But yeah. Shawshank Redemption was one of those movies where if it was on, I, would, I could throw it on and I would not be bored with it, you know? Yeah. I can go in the middle of it. And I can't say that I've watched Jaws that many times. I feel like I've watched it more recently than I ever did before. Yeah. And like appreciate it more than I did before. But I, every time I watch it, it's just enjoyable and I never get tired of it. I feel like Steven Spielberg just has this magic about him where he can make almost a, a family-friendly, fun horror movie that still scares the shit out of you. Absolutely. He's so good at that. And he's really good at making it timeless. Yeah. You know, he, he has a way of capturing a moment, so you appreciate the moment during the time, and that it ages well, and that it just focuses on core emotions and feelings, a lot of it being fear. Yeah. But also other aspects of it so that it's not just a flavor of the wheat type of thing. Definitely. And for this one in particular, obviously Poltergeist is one of my favorite horror movies and one of my favorite movies. I love Poltergeist so much. But I remember Jaws mostly for like what a feel-good movie it is and how fun it is to watch. And every time I watch it, I feel like I've been lulled into this false sense of security, and I forget how brutal and terrifying it really is. Yeah, every time. it takes a wild turn. Like oh, it's, man. you know, terrifying as you're watching it's it. It's hardcore. But then it just goes, you're left like, what the fuck? Yeah. Especially for a PG, you know? Yeah. Like, it gets pretty <laughs> Yeah, Steven grotesque. Spielberg was, like, single-handedly responsible for creating PG-13 Yeah, ratings. he pushed the limit <laughs> he every did time so, he could. Like, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, and they're like, that's it. We're done. <laughs> You've gone too far. <laughs> I love that, though. I know. So I thought maybe for this one, since this movie had the unintentional and very tragic side effect of promoting, basically promoting unfeathered slaughter of sharks. Afterwards, there was a, a number of private individuals that were going out and catching these as many sharks as they could just so they could, you know, get their jaws up in their uh, trophy room. And there was people paying money to have them hunted. There was competitions that were created. I think there was one that was called To Catch a Monster or something like that. Oh. Which actually still goes on, but now it's catch and release. Where before it was basically just who can ever kill the most sharks. Oh, and it was just, no one has a hard, I was trying to find uh, statistics on like how many sharks died because of this movie. And nobody has like a clear cut, but I mean, it's tens of thousands of sharks have been killed. It's to the point where some, some shark species are now considered vulnerable. Absolutely. And then I did also read this uh, article from a marine biologist that was saying that it was kind of a twofold thing. It was mm -hmm. like, yes, you know, it did unfortunately promote all this uh, killing and slaughter of these wonderful beautiful animals simultaneously it also kind of woke up the shark community scientists to yeah. like hey wait a minute we don't understand enough about these animals we need more funding and now it was in the public interest like people were interested in it 
It was at the forefront and it actually promoted getting more funding and the most funding that shark research has ever gotten or the most interest that it ever has. It got the population interested in it. So there's a lot more education about sharks and obviously it pretty much developed into Shark Week and all this other kind of stuff. And obviously there's still a lot of fear behind sharks and a lot of misinformation and the news behind any kind of shark attack is so sensationalized that still promotes a great deal of fear and really ungrounded perceptions that you're going to be attacked. Yeah. But at the very least it has brought that kind of um, national and international attention and funding to uh, sharks. That's good news. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I Most of the information I saw was just the really unfortunate and unintended consequences of both the book and the movie of, you know, sharks just being demonized and misunderstood, overhunted. And uh, the author himself who wrote the book, his name was Peter Benchley. Mm-hmm. And he actually is now a conservationist. Right. And it's, it's because of this. And he really regrets the way that things played out after his book was written and after the movie was put out. And he says that, you know, if he knew today what he knew then about sharks, he would have never written that book. Yeah, no, yeah, I read that. That was amazing. But I don't think Steven Spielberg has expressed the same misgivings. Not that I've seen. No. (laughs) (laughs) I can't hear you through all this money. Yeah, one, speaking of, you know, all the sharks dying, it's not just from people killing them from fun. I mean, there was a big surge of that after Jaws, but it was kind of a simultaneous thing because, one, there was more uh, attention in that way, so there was basically a bunch of rich assholes that were out there doing it for fun. But simultaneously, there was, you know, a a large increase in um, fisheries in, like, the the 70s and 80s as well as, um, you know, they started having more demand for different type of fish products and everything. Mm -hmm. And so once that I have here, which is actually from... The official documenter and keeper of shark statistics in the United States, which is the University of Florida, because uh, as it turns out, Florida is actually the number one shark attack location in the world. No way. Yeah. I thought for sure it would have been that area off of uh, the coast of Africa. Right? I know. Yeah. I was expecting call it like um, Shark Alley or something. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely more sharks there. Yeah. Uh, but as far as people. shark attacks, but if you think about how many people actually go out and yeah. It makes sense when you kind of think about it. Not a lot of people swim over there because they're yeah. not stupid. True. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know the IQ level of Florida nowadays. <laughs> so there's that. But there's about 100 million sharks and rays that are killed annually. 100 million just from fisheries. I'm glad you said that twice because the first time you said it, it didn't really register. Yeah. And then when you said it again, I was like, it's wait, 100 what? 100 million. And by contrast, there's about four deadly fatal shark attacks per year. Yeah. Uh, so that's a two and a half million to one kill ratio. That's so sad. It's unbelievably tragic. I can't even wrap my head around those numbers. I know. It's insane. And that's every 100 year? hundred million. I mean, that's sharks and rays, so it's not like it's all sharks, but still. Every year? Every year. What the fuck? Oh, no. It's it's absolutely tragic. And that's not even, you know, counting. Well, I guess it is. It's fishery, so, I mean, you have, like, shark fin soup and all that kind of yeah. stuff, which is... Does that also include sharks that are unintentionally caught mm-hmm. in fishing yeah. nets? Because I'm sure that accounts so. for a lot of it. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah, I was actually really surprised with that um, Florida figure. So there's basically two different categories of shark attacks. And it's basically um, stupid assholes and not stupid assholes attacks. <laughs> there's provoked and unprovoked. So okay. provoked is like the stupid assholes that go around and like poke sharks and pull on their tails and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Or um, the guy that tried to kiss that one in the yeah, video. Yeah, that's a stupid asshole attack. So okay. basically those, everyone uh, in the scientific community is all unanimously agreed. Like those don't count. Right. <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> that's, 
You're a stupid okay. asshole. That doesn't count. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that up on another board for you. We'll have the stupid asshole count. But th- these are like 2019 numbers. But the stupid asshole count was 40% of all shark attacks were stupid asshole. 40%? Yeah. That's was, high. Yeah, real, real high. That's a lot of stupid assholes. A lot of stupid assholes. Wow. As far as locality is concerned. So there were 64 provoked or unprovoked attacks. Right? Yeah. Worldwide. You have to think about how many millions of people go into the water every single day and how often they do it. So you can think of just probably in the billions of human hours in the water worldwide. And of those billions of hours of humans in the water, only 64 people were attacked. Wow. And then as far as actual how many of those were confirmed or like actual like deaths, Mm -hmm. you know, usually it's in the realm of somewhere between four to maybe like I think on the high end they've had 12 or something like that fatalities but it's pretty dang low you know as far as that's concerned but I yeah I was I was really surprised because when it comes to actual shark attacks oh here it is yeah I was wondering so of that 64 that got attacked two of them were fatal wow so hardly any well I mean obviously it's still the stories are so gruesome and insane that they get so much news and there's this thing that's called like saturation bias or something like that where that's all you hear and that's all you see so you have the misinformation that this is going around around you all the time you know and so people think shark attacks are happening all the time we have the same thing that goes in the news cycles when it comes to crime you know like crack babies and stuff like that you see it on the news all the time then you think everyone's having crack babies yeah especially it seems like when it comes to fatalities related to nature it's a really interesting insight into human psychology and our relationship with nature like i was thinking also of bear attacks when you hear about somebody getting attacked by a bear or even their camp getting raided by a bear it's just widespread panic they kill the animal you know of course conservationists are trying to convince humans to behave in ways that don't make bears approach you in the first place so they don't have to kill the bears but it just seems like whenever you have a story like this that involves a person being killed because of a naturally occurring thing or because of it a wild animal it's just i guess it's what this movie taps into just the deepest most primal human fears Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, but California, I mean, USA is by far and away the number one shark attack capital of the world. We're number one for a lot of really bad it's things. It's all the bad shit, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 41 of those attacks happened in the US of the 64. Wow. After that, it was Australia, which you would kind of expect. Yeah. And then after that, it's onesies. Wow. So I, I was thought for sure that uh, in like South, South Africa... Yeah. They would have more there. I guess you're right, though, because it's so well known for being... They call it Shark Alley, so yeah. people aren't going to go there and hang out. No, and the people that do go there know how to interact, yeah. and they know how to, like, not be in the water when it's, you know, there's certain right. times that you shouldn't be there. And... Or they're studying them. Yeah, and I think they actually have, like, shark lookouts in those areas, okay. like lifeguards, but shark watchers. And so people get the fuck out of the water when they're supposed to. But yeah, I was blown away by that. And then of, of those, half of them, over half of them happen in Florida. Wow. And that is why Florida is in charge of shark statistics. They're like, you know, it's your fucking problem. Makes sense to me. You're not going to have Alaska be in charge. (laughs) No. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting. Definitely. I didn't know that at all. So moral of the story is do not worry about getting attacked by a shark. And for sure, do not do anything to promote killing of sharks, please. Please. I love these animals so much. And a lot of them are on the brink of they like reproduce very slowly yeah. They mature very slowly. I found they've been around 
on the planet for over estimates of like 450 million years. We've been around for like two and a half, so respect your fucking elders. That's yeah, what I'm going to say. for real. Well said. And if you are afraid of sharks, like if that's perfectly okay, you can be afraid of sharks, just don't go in the water. Or don't do anything that promotes killing them. At least yeah. don't like try to spread that fear. You know, I was trying to look up stuff of what people can do, your average citizen, and most biologists, marine biologists agree that just like stopping the public perception, misperception that sharks are dangerous. Because, you know, as we've seen, the way that people act when they are afraid and Mm -hmm. the choices that we make are deeply flawed at best and dangerous at the worst times. Definitely. So well said. And don't eat them. Yeah, please don't eat them. I don't care how tasty they are. No, there's just, there's some shit you don't need to eat and there's enough dead sharks every year accidentally and otherwise and especially don't eat them for their fucking fins i know that's so wasteful i can't even fathom it just makes me sick to my stomach yeah yeah it's really interesting information i had no idea that florida was like the capital of i knew they got a lot i knew that in the united states that was like the hot spot yeah i didn't realize it was the The hot spot of the world yeah and that the u.s was the hot spot of the world Wow. I, I was really blown away by that. Yeah, I had no idea. And they're pretty much all concentrated in that area. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think after that, it's basically the Hawaii, which you would also expect, and then California. But, I mean, the numbers dropped dramatically yeah, after I Florida. Imagine. Okay, so, like I said before, this is one of your very favorite horror movies. Did it traumatize you as a kid? No, I loved it. And I actually, I don't ever remember being scared of it. I'm probably find more fear in it today because A, I have more respect for yeah. sharks and B, I kind of go into movies nowadays and really anything, any kind of story I get involved in. I always remember a saying that my great grandfather, I never got to meet him, but he sounded like an extraordinary man. Mm-hmm. And there's words of wisdom that I've gotten through my grandfather that were from him that I've like lived my life by. And one thing that he used to say was basically that you make your own fun Mm -hmm. and that there's two types of people in the world. And there's the person that goes to the theater and sits, plops their ass in a chair and then lays back and says, okay, entertain me. And then there's the person who's there to have a good time and to entertain themselves and to find joy in things and to appreciate the good things of the, the play or you know, immerse themselves in that storyline that's trying to be presented and not just looking at it through a super critical lens. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't go through all that shit, but that's kind of what I get out of it. And it's just, I like to take my time with movies and books now and really try to immerse myself in either multiple or a single character and to imagine and feel what they are feeling. Yeah. And doing that with Jaws is fucking terrifying. Yes. It really is. I I completely agree with everything you said. This is one of those movies where I like to do this with all horror movies, especially like we've discussed before, just being so desensitized and having seen so many things. And now with the podcast, having to watch these movies through a more critical lens, it really becomes such a more enriching experience when you're actually able to fully immerse yourself in the movie. Yeah. That applies to everything. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, with this one in particular, um, this one really didn't scare me as a kid either. And I I watched a lot of horror movies as a kid. There were a couple that really stuck with me, really traumatized me. This just wasn't one of them. And I think one of those reasons was, one, like you said, as an adult now, I'm able to immerse myself more in what's happening. And I can really appreciate it more and have a healthier respect for these animals and what they can do. But I also have never been one to go into the water. So I knew as a kid, even then, if I don't go into the water, I won't get attacked by a shark. Problem solved. There's nothing to worry about. But my poor mom 
was so traumatized by this movie. You know, we all have that one movie that completely scarred us for life as a kid, and this was that movie for her. And it was so bad. She saw it so young, and it scarred her so bad that she would be terrified of the bathtub. <laughs> and it got to the point where she'd be in the bathtub and she would start screaming. And one time my grandpa was just, like, so exasperated with it, he ran into the bathroom when she was screaming. And he was like, God damn it, Jenny, you think that shark's going to jump in its car, drive down the 605 freeway just to come here and eat you? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I can so imagine your grandpa saying I that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I know, crack me up. But yeah, this was the movie that traumatized my mom. Nice. This and The Exorcist. Those oh, are the, yeah. the two that did it. Yeah, I actually don't even think I really liked this movie when I was younger. Oh, I loved it. I just... I never, like, I didn't get into it till I was probably in, I guess, high school or so. Oh, man. So good. Yeah. And even then, I feel like it has been more recent times that every time I watched it, I was like, you know what? This is fucking great. It really is. And then I'd watch it again. I'm like, man, that's better than last time. Yeah. I never get tired of watching it, and it, I feel like it never loses its impact. No. So, did you want to give us just a quick recap of the story before we dive into the plot? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a quick story, I guess. Basically, we're on uh, Amity Island, and it's a, a small island in um, around the East Coast. And it's known for being kind of a, a tourist trap, if you will. Mm-hmm. A lot of people travel there for the weekends and holidays and stuff like that because it's just beautiful beaches and boardwalks and kind of cute little town. And it's fastly approaching Fourth of July weekend, which is part of the reason why we chose it for this uh come out during this time you know so everyone's gung-ho to get the beaches going get the tourists out there there's a shark attack and at first everyone's not really quite sure what the hell's going on there's some back and forth on whether or not it was a shark attack and there's motivation to keep the beaches open then there's another shark attack and this time there's no pussyfooting around it's a shark attack yeah and next thing you know they realize they have a problem on their hands and they're going to be flooding the beaches with thousands of people out there and it seems like they have a vicious predator on their hands and it just escalates from there so i feel like the first portion of the movie is this back and forth between people of reason trying to keep the thing shut down for public safety reasons yeah and then you have you know the mayor and the the business owners that are like I don't give a fuck who dies. I need people in here filling these places up so we can make our, you know, cha-ching. They don't care who dies, and a lot of people die as a result of it. I never thought that this movie would end up being so socially relevant today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have these arrogant politicians who value economic growth over human life, and they are basically bullying the experts and the scientists into silence so that they can make their tourist dollars. Yeah, and there's actually a, a really great scene in this movie where one of the main characters, who's kind of the sympathetic character, is uh, Brody, and he's the chief of police. And, you know, he's just, I mean, his job is to keep the community safe, and he's just trying to do the right thing, and he's trying to convince the mayor and these others that there's a real problem. I mean, he was ready to close the beaches immediately. Yeah. And they were, you know, keep on pushing on on, on it, and they basically tell him he can't do that. They let everyone go into the water and a little boy dies and it's a really traumatic scene oh yeah that was terrible oh, a little boy and the guy in the the dinghy yeah and the dog too right and the dog so we got three and one i forgot about the dinghy dude yeah yeah there's three so there's deaths. you know no one cared about the dog i do um i mean i do too but Pip i'm just it. saying it never gets missed yeah <laughs> Pip it. Pip it. 
But there's this really horrible scene where this little, you know, nine or ten year old boy gets attacked and it's very gruesome, blood everywhere. And then the mother of that boy later finds out that Brody knew about the shark and basically still let the beaches stay open where he didn't, it wasn't, you know, his hands were tied. Um, he really had no control over the matter, but the mother comes up, the grieving mother comes up and just smacks him hard. And it's just like, you know, shame on you. I yeah. just found out that you knew. And it's a really powerful scene because here you have the people in a place of authority that are the ones that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And the public safety. And they're battling these others that are basically willing, knowing and willingly putting lives in danger. But it's since Brody's, you know, supposed to be the one in charge, he has to take the brunt of it and is blamed for it. It's a scene where I have a lot of respect for him because at no point does he ever try to throw anybody under the bus. I'm reminded of a saying from Roosevelt or one of the things on his desk was the buck stops here, mm -hmm. which I love. And it was just like, you know what? It doesn't matter or not if you were the one who did it. You know, you were the one in charge. And so he takes responsibility for that, as any true leader would. That scene really resonated with me, too. And I love all of the characters in this movie. But Brody's character resonated with me so deeply on so many levels. And I related to him so much. Not, not necessarily because of that. Like, I'll get into why in a little bit but just like you said that scene was just such a testament to the kind of leader he was and the kind of person he is and you really get the impression that the whole reason he moved to Amity Island in the first place was you know he's a he's a very cautious very anxious person he is really it, it seems like he's just looking for danger around every corner and he moved to Amity Island for a quieter more peaceful life and immediately, like his first weekend on the job, this shit starts going down. And he doesn't complain. He jumps into action. He jumps to figure out what's going on. And that scene in particular, uh, the boy that was killed, his name was Alex Kintner. So Mrs. Kintner, when she shows up and slaps him, I was just thinking, wow, like we, we know that it's not Brody's fault. Like we as an audience know that. And despite that fact, he still feels responsible and he doesn't argue with her he doesn't fight her on it he just accepts responsibility and vows to fix it right which is just wow well there's also a scene and and specifically i think he's talking to hooper i think it was maybe a point where they were like drunk on the boat or something like that mm -hmm. and he actually says one of the reasons why he left new york wasn't necessarily because um, he was looking for like a quieter scene or anything but he was saying like there was just so much crime there yeah that he felt like he never made a difference yeah and the reason why he wanted to move to a smaller community was so that he could make a difference yeah and so his actions were impactful um so you know that that you know resonates in testament to what kind of person he is that it's not good enough that he is preventing crime but he has to feel that sense of accomplishment and really bear the burden of you know making a difference definitely and just going back to that scene real quick you you reminded me of a fact that I read about that scene that was actually really funny, despite how somber that moment is. But uh, the scene where the actress, her name is Lee Fierro, she played Alex's mother. Apparently she could not fake slap. And they had to do that take 17 times. <laughs> so the poor, poor Roy Scheider, who played Brody was being just bitch slapped 17 times. <laughs> and he said it was like the most painful 17 takes of his career. And at one point, like Steven Spielberg said that he got slapped so hard his glasses flew off. 
I was like, damn. Like, damn, girl. <laughs> like, you don't have the fake slap, but you have to slap him so hard, hard his glasses yeah. fall He's got to do a Karen slap. Poor guy. <laughs> a Karen slap. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. I know. I laughed so hard when I read that. I was like, that poor guy. But, yeah, he is a, a really, really amazing guy. And I also... They, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but I think that's one of the things that Steven Spielberg is so good at is just developing his characters and making you care for them in a really short amount of time. But I absolutely loved the relationship between Brody and his wife, Ellen. They were absolutely. so adorable. And with his kids. Yeah. Just that whole family was so adorable and endearing. Yeah, that's, like, that's a really good point. He does have a way of really distilling and concentrating characters and relationships, especially family ones. Uh, like you said, there's not a lot of... I mean, there's some, but it's very impactful. Exactly, yeah. There, I mean, there's only a couple scenes between him and his wife, but the first one is where she wakes up in the morning and they're kind of like bantering back and forth and joking with each other, and it's really cute. And then there's the one scene that I... Re- it's one, like one of my favorite downtime moments in the movie where... He's just had an awful day. It was after he talked to uh, Alex's mom after that awful day on the beach. And he's reading about great white sharks, which side note, that's another reason why I love him so much. And he's so wise is he immediately jumps into trying to understand these animals and trying to research them and learn as much as he can. So he's reading these books about shark behavior, shark attacks, and his wife comes in and like brings him a scotch. And then she's like, you want to get drunk and fool around? He's like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're just so cute. (laughs) Big time. And then, you know, his son is out on a boat that he got for his birthday and Brody being the anxiety ridden guy he is, is just like, get the hell out of there. And then, you know, Ellen is kind of like, oh, come on, it's fine. And then she takes one look at the picture of the shark biting the boat. And she's like, you heard your father. Get out of the water. <laughs> get out of there right now <laughs> i just i really love like all of the brief moments that we get with those two yeah there's some like really cute scenes and yeah. even the way that she kind of playfully talks about him even while he's in the room like there's the scene when hooper comes in oh yeah after um it's basically the same night i guess or maybe the night afterwards but i mm-hmm. think it's the same night so you know he's had a, a rough it's like a really rough day for him and he's already had a bit to drink and he's kind of sitting there at the table and hooper comes in and he's like, I'd like to talk to your husband. He's like, so would I. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that cracked me up too. Oh man, I found out a, a fact about the book that was so upsetting. Uh-oh. Thankfully it wasn't in the movie, but apparently in the book, Hooper has an affair with Brody's wife. Oh. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, I heard the book was uh, in the movie or not at all. Like, Mm-mm. I'm glad they didn't put that in the movie. No, nah, that, that would not have fit. That would have sucked. Yeah, speaking of Hooper, I thought that was another interesting fact about, you know, I was talking about how this... The negative impacts of this movie, but also one of the positive impacts is this actually ended up inspiring a whole generation of marine biologists. And they're basically like there's a whole generation of marine biologists and specifically marine biologists that study sharks that basically contribute their interest and their desire to get into the field because of Jaws. Oh, that's so cool. There's actually one of the leading or one of the main guys that was on this article as a marine biologist was like that's why i got into it you know like i I wanted to be a hooper i thought he was the fucking coolest dude in the movie you know yeah and so i thought that was pretty awesome that is super awesome hooper is actually out of the trio like brody hooper and quint i absolutely i love brody so much and i relate to him so much but hooper has always been my favorite character yeah he's really good in that too i love his role in that yeah 
feel like he's the one who's, you know, the voice of reason, but he's also just kind of down to earth and chill about it. And he's like, well, if you want to go fuck yourself, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're going to go kill yourself, go kill yourself. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, they're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all going to die. <laughs> oh, he's so good. And then just the, uh, of course, when Quint shows up in that iconic scene, you know, the nails down the chalkboard. <laughs> so good. Oh, my God. Every moment he's in is pure gold. Yeah. And you can just tell, like, God, that guy is such a dick. I would hate to work with him. But he's so entertaining. So entertaining. So fun to watch. And there's also that element of, I feel like that happens a lot in, I don't know how much it is for, you know, academia as far as quote-unquote experts go. I don't like, I feel like that term is thrown around way too much. Expert? I, I hate the word expert. Yeah. I hate the term expert. But, you know... Quint is considered, you know, an expert in his field, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. But let's just say, you know, someone that is uh, highly established in their particular field, especially for like trade crafts, you know, like fishermen or even, you know, whatever it may be. There's always like that old guy that has all the experience and knows it. And I feel like they're always like this crotchety old man pervert and kind of an asshole. Yeah. But at the same time, it's the only guy in the room that knows how to fix the car or the only guy in the room that knows how to do the thing. So the you know, you're kind of forced to deal with them as a whole. Yes. And you mentioned the word academia. I find the relationship and the juxtaposition between Quint and Hooper so interesting and so entertaining because on one hand you have, like, they're both experts, but Hooper is like the academic expert who is fascinated by sharks and has studied them all his life, but he really doesn't have like the, what you would call the dirt time Mm -hmm. with the sharks. And Quint is a shark hunter. He works on his own. He's killed so many sharks. He's seen how they behave. And it's really interesting when you get each of their backstories later on and you see like the tension between them, which another side note real quick is like in the movie, Quint and Hooper clash immediately. And they clash in a lot of ways, I think, because of their different approaches to their professions, and they, they don't necessarily respect each other. And at one point, Quint, like, grabs his hands, and he's like, you've got city hands counting money from counting money all your life. And then Hooper responds with, I don't need this working class hero crap. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of just rivals for the rest of the movie. But quick side note is those two actors could not stand each other in real life. Really? Yeah, that tension was 100% real. They hated each other, and it's because Robert Shaw, who plays Quint, was an asshole. Oh, yeah? He was a drunk, belligerent asshole. They had nothing but trouble with him on set. He was constantly drunk. He was harassing Richard Dreyfus Like, he was a dick. Well, that's what they paid him to do. <laughs> so Maybe that's... he was just a serious method actor. Maybe, but yeah. Like, they had some serious... There were a lot of production issues with yeah. this movie, but one of them was just Robert Shaw being a belligerent asshole. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, like, it was bad. But it's really interesting later in the movie when you get both of their backstories of why they kind of went down the path that they did. And it makes so much sense when you hear each of their stories. Like, Absolutely. for Hooper, it was, uh, he had a little boat that he got as a present, and he accidentally caught a baby thresher shark. And it basically destroyed his boat and ate his boat, but he wasn't hurt. He was able to watch this from a safe place, get out of the boat, and watch this shark rip apart his boat. And then he thought, this is so fascinating. I want to understand these creatures. I want to study them. But for Quint, you find out that he was a World War II veteran and he was on the USS Indianapolis, which sank and hundreds of men around him were killed and eaten by sharks. Yeah, I actually had a little bit of information on that. Did you? Yeah, I I knew that the story was true, or at least most of it, you know, and I was 
wanted to refresh my memory on some of it. So I got this from the smithsonianmag.com. Basically, and so Hooper's story is more or less accurate. You know, yeah. there's some things that are embellished a little bit. I thought it was kind of interesting because they actually got the date wrong. He says that it was June 29th. Well, it's July 29th. Okay. So they got the month wrong. And then there was some other nitpicky shit. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's a really fascinating story. And the fact that Quint was on that is just, like you said, it really illuminates his character and why he does what he does. Yeah. But basically, there's this um, vessel that was delivering not the bomb, but parts, basically all the equipment needed to assemble the bomb that was going to be dropped on Hiroshima. And because of that, it was incredibly top secret. And they delivered all the parts, and as they were leaving, they were attacked. And the vessel sank. So that's the USS Indianapolis. And on yeah, July 28th is when it went down. Or I guess it got attacked on west on the 28th got attacked on the 29th. Mm-hmm. There was 1,196 men on board. 900 made it into the water. So you already had almost 200 that died just from the, the vessel going down. Yeah. And then over the course of four days, that number dropped to 317 that remained. Damn. And basically it was what Quint was saying, you know, more or less, that people, there were Sharks came, people were getting pecked off left and right, and a lot of the guys were saying that, you know, because of the situation, that the men were going basically insane um, with hunger and thirst. Some of them killed each other, right? They were killing each other, and they were also saying that as the guys would, you know, they were drinking, some of them were drinking salt water, they were so thirsty, which is obviously one of the worst things you can do. Yeah. So they were dehydrated and literally just insane to some degree. Yeah. And... Those guys, when they would get attacked, they would often grab one of their comrades and drag them underwater and drown them with them wow. because they were just like not thinking. Yeah. And so it got, it sounds just like one of the most horrible situations you can possibly imagine where not only are you worried about getting tagged by this shark, but then you're also worrying about, and you're trying to like do the safety and numbers thing. So you're trying to stay together. But at the same time, you're worried about the fact that if that guy next to you gets tagged, he's probably going to drag you down. Yeah. So you're also trying to spread out. And it's just unbelievably fucked up. Oh, man. But yeah, and so the, nobody knows how many of them actually died from shark attacks. Nobody ever will know. Estimates are from like a few dozen to 150. But nevertheless, it's still considered the worst shark attack event that has ever been recorded. Wow, that's crazy. I, I saw a, a couple of those points, too, when I was researching for this movie, and I, I was curious when I heard that story from Quint, like, how much of that is actually accurate, and it it was pretty close. Yeah. Just a couple of the, the numbers here and there and the date that it happened, but, yeah, I mean, for the most part, that was a true story. Absolutely. And there's some pretty great documentaries on it. I've seen them before. Um, I don't have any in offhand right now, but you can look it up, and it's just a really fascinating story. Yeah. You know, like I said, it, Quint's character is so iconic and so entertaining to watch. And at least for me, I kind of like hate watch him the whole time and just think about like how hard he would be to work with and what a dick that guy is. Like, especially with not just women, but everyone around him. But then when he starts telling that story, I was so intrigued and so roped in. And I just like, I wanted to hear all of his stories. Absolutely. And, and it also gives you sympathy for him for yeah. to like why he's such an isolated prick. Yeah, and and that's the first time he really shows vulnerability and fear, and it just makes it that much more brutal and tragic that his death is his greatest fear. Yeah. Like, that's how he dies. It's terrible. Oh, I know. Oh, and my it's, God. 
you know, after surviving that and, you know, hunting these creatures all his life. And I think in a way he does it, you know, and that, that story kind of illustrates that, that he has focused his life killing these things basically to confront that fear. Yeah. Like all his life he's been trying to fight back against that one event and, you know, prove to these sharks that he's the survivor and that he's going to kill them. And to have him, you know, slide in to the mouth of this behemoth great white shark that he has so confidently thought he could take down. It's insanely tragic. It is. I always forget how brutal that scene is, too. And the whole movie up until this point has that iconic John Williams soundtrack. And it, it definitely has that Steven Spielberg feel for the rest of the movie. Like, other than that the intro music and the actual Jaws theme. It's very almost pleasant sounding, like orchestral, happy music. And that moment of the movie where their boat is sinking, we don't know where Hooper is, and the shark launches itself onto the edge of the boat and Quint slides down into its mouth. It's completely silent, except for this thing crunching down on him and him screaming. It's so haunting. What a way to go. Oh, man. Yeah, I think it's that slow slide because he's like grabbing onto stuff and the jaws is right there. And it's that slow slide where there's like he's nothing he can do. It's so fucked. Oh, it's really hard to experience that and like to try to put yourself in that. It gets me shoot. every time. And just like that bone crunching sound and the, and the screaming, screaming and the blood. It's just terrifying. Absolutely. And then Brody is like watching the whole thing happen as he's also hanging on trying not to slide down. One thing I caught, and I don't know if it was incidental or not, I don't think it was, but there's a a scene where Brody almost gets Hooper killed at a point because he's going to get the air tanks. Oh shit, yeah. And he like lets go of the wrong line. And so he's like fumbling around because he doesn't know shit about boats, right? And so, you know, Hooper kind of flips his shit and rightly so, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Quint kind of tries to defend him a little bit, but then he turns around and he's like, hey, just let me know next time. Kind of politely and respectfully is like, you did fuck up. Just be careful next time. Yeah. And one of the things that happens at the end is that Hooper, or not Hooper, but Brody puts one of those cylinders up on the table as the ship is going down. Like it's rocking and going down. And so he puts it up. I forget why he even throws it there. I think he's just like trying to get to the back of the boat. But he, like, places it on the table. And Quint has his hand and has his, you know, something to grab onto. And as the boat is tilting down towards the shark, that tank rolls off and hits his hand. And that's why he lets go. And it's just, it's as this, if you pay attention to it, it adds this extra layer of hurt. Oh, man. And pain. Because ultimately, you can say that Brody, in a way, was responsible for Quint. I want to pretend demise. that that was not intentional, because that's cruel. I think it was intentional. No. But then he ends up using that tank to blow him up. I was so happy that Brody was the one who got to kill the shark, because, like I said, I just I related to Brody on such a deep personal level. Like I am totally that friend who is super cautious and super anxious and always aware of like the potential danger of any situation and a couple of friends of mine have the nickname for me they call me Chucky and it's Chucky from the Rugrats 
who is like, I don't know you guys. I don't think this is a good idea. Like that's, <laughs> I'm Chucky to them because I'm always that person and that friend who is like seeing the potential danger in different situations. And just, there were so many moments in this movie where I could just relate to Brody so much because of that, especially when he actually does go out to sea with Quinn and Hooper and he's just so out of his element and so afraid. And there's that one iconic line where he says, you're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. And that line was actually ad-libbed and they oh, kept really? it because it was nice. so good. But he just like keeps playing off of that line. And I'm just like, oh my God, that is so 100% what I would be saying in that situation. Yeah. And then like, maybe we could radio in and ask for a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, side note on the boat real quick. You, did you notice that the boat's name was the Orca? Yeah. I thought that was really cool because Orcas are actually the only natural predator of great white sharks. Yeah, I thought it was pretty awesome too. Yeah. I was like, that's metal. That's a little really shout cool. Yeah. Yeah. A little shout out. Who's a, who's your favorite out of the trio? I gotta say Hooper. Yeah, yeah, same. I definitely feel you are Brody. Yeah. Like that's your character. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I, I love Hooper. Yeah. And I just love the way he interacts with the authority. I love the way that I, I feel like Hooper I can I feel like I have more in common with Hooper because like you said, there's kind of this they touch on that whole like white collar, blue collar aspect or the intellectual and the, the dirt time type of thing between him and Quint. Like yeah. both kind of attacking the same problem in different yeah. ways. But Hooper is not your standard egghead. Yeah. He is someone that has... You may not be in the same genre or in the same uh, ballpark that Quint is. He may not have, like, spent his life on boats, but he has spent a lot of time on boats. He has, you know, he spent a lot of time out in the water. He's one of the kind of intense scenes is when he takes Brody out onto a boat to go track the shark at night. Oh, yeah. And he just, like, straight up jumps in the fucking water. He sees, like, this a down boat that looks like it may have been a shark attack. And, like, he just fucking jumps in. Yeah. And I, like, the fucking balls on that guy. And, you know, he when they do the, like, they have their little dick measuring contest and they're showing off each other's scars and everything. <laughs> you can tell he's, you know, a guy that has put in the time. And he's not just a, a book-learned person yeah, or and, individual. And Quint kind of begins to understand that. Like, they really bond in that moment when they're all drinking together and they just narrowly escaped death. And this is uh, after the first time that you actually see the shark's face pop up out of the water, which was one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Oh, man, it's so good. Oh, my God. When Brody is and chumming Brody's the water, eyes his look. face. Yeah. Holy shit. That's what he says. <laughs> yes. He walks in, like, backwards to Quint. He's like, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> But that scene was so good, and I feel like it really solidified that respect between Quint and Hooper. I also loved, it was another little just moment that Brody stole my heart, where Quint and Hooper are comparing their scars, and they got their legs up on the table, they're ripping their shirts open, and Brody is just standing over the corner, <laughs> quietly looking at his own appendix <laughs> scar, scar. <Yeah. laughs> not saying anything, yeah, just like, I have one too, uh, yeah. but he doesn't say anything, no. and I'm just like, I love that guy so much. <laughs> Yeah, I fucking, I love Hooper, and like I said, I, I feel like, you know, I grew up, I was able to, you know, get my engineering degree, but going to school, I was always, while I was doing it, I was working in a factory and doing machining type of work and stuff like that, and yeah. I've always been a blue-collar worker working my way through this, and most people in the field are not necessarily have that experience, so I, I feel like I've had the same vein as him, where I am in that, you're in that intellectual or white-collar field, but you're kind of like a blue collar in disguise. Yeah, you have that unique perspective of both sides of the coin. Yeah, and then I, you know, you can tell that he has respect, deep respect for Quint, but at the same time is like frustrated that Quint is not showing him the same respect. Absolutely. 
Yeah, like Quentin immediately starts antagonizing right. him. Yeah, and Hooper is so good at standing up for himself. Yeah, he absolutely. Whether it's to the mayor or to Quentin or whoever yeah, it he is, he like, doesn't give a shit. He gives a shit about his profession and about these sharks and about fixing the problem. Exactly. He doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. No, and I love that. Same. You know, and they yeah. even show there at a point where, um, again, when Brody's on his boat and he's like, man, where did you get all this equipment? Like, do they pay for all this? And he's like, no, it's mine. Yeah. Out of my own pocket. He's like, I'm rich. But he says it so matter-of-factly. It's not like a, a bragging thing or a... No. But he also, thing. like, also is indicating that I'm not relying on other people yeah. to make this happen. Like, this is my passion. Yeah, and he's he's obviously extremely privileged and comes from a privileged background, but he is deeply committed to using that privilege in a productive way. Absolutely. And I feel like he, like we were saying, like Quint doesn't seem to understand that about him initially and just kind of assumes that he's another one of these stuck-up academic assholes. Right. You know, he just totally has his head in the clouds and yeah. up his ass and doesn't know the, the first thing about tying a... A bowline. A bowline. Yeah. Just for a second, can we go back and talk about Mayor Vaughn? Yeah, I think we need to. We need to. It's been the elephant in the room, for us at least, of why this movie is so relevant today. (laughs) Where to even start with Mayor Vaughn? Okay, first off, I'll start by mentioning probably one of the best memes I've ever seen. It's definitely one of my favorite memes of all time. Yeah. So it was a, one of your friends posted it in the Discord channel. I'm so sorry. I can't remember who it was, but I died laughing and I continuously go back to visit that meme but it was a a collage shot of hooper brody maravon and the shark right and uh they each had a caption on them so hooper was dr anthony fauci brody was cuomo from new york maravon was donald trump and the shark was covid19 <laughs> <laughs> i think and if that says seen... <laughs> that, that says everything on in a nutshell. If you've seen the movie, you understand exactly what was going on there. But like I said, you have this arrogant politician who could give two shits about human life. All he cares about is economic gain. And even the way he speaks is so uncanny and similar to how Trump speaks. Like after there have been multiple shark attacks, he says, I am pleased and happy to announce that we've caught and killed a shark that supposedly injured some bathers. Right. Injured some bathers. It ripped them to shreds. Yeah. (laughs) And they did not they're in pieces. Yeah, in pieces. A kid was killed, a dog was killed, the guy in the dinghy was killed. A lot of people are dead, Maribon. Supposedly (laughs) injured some bathers. Yeah, injured some bathers. And it really takes, like, the kid dying for him to even be open to closing the beaches. And even then, they do it for 24 hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, hardly that's at all. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And in fact, uh, immediately after that, you know, because of the 4th of July, he has them open it again. And, yeah. you know, then all these tourists come flooding in. And, you know, they have the police completely on guard. They're out in boats. Everyone's looking. And nobody's getting into the water. That was the most despicable part to me is that me not only is he keeping the beaches open, but he is actively going around and pushing and persuading people to go in the water. Yeah, there's this family that he goes up to and he's like, why aren't you swimming? Nobody's in the water. And it's like this older man, his wife, and their three kids. And uh, the guy starts fumbling. He's like, well, I just put some sunblock on and blah. Obviously, he's terrified to go in, you know. And he's like, just do me a favor and get in the water. And the people don't even trust him enough to tell him that they're afraid. Yeah, and then, like, the wife and the husband look at each other like, I guess this is it. Guess we'll die. Guess we'll die now. (laughs) And, you know, gets out there. And that's what, you know, floods everybody into the water as soon as the first people do. But they were all safe on the beach. Yeah. It was okay to have the beaches open. 
as long as you weren't in the water. Yeah. You know, but he, like, basically coerced this guy with his authority to do something that that individual knew was the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And they did it anyways. And then following that, you have immediately another shark attack. Exactly. And then not only is he kind of persuading and pushing the people on the beach to go in the water for his own personal economic gain, but he also starts bullying Brody immediately. So remember, this is Brody's first weekend on the job in Andy Island, and this horrible tragedy happens where this woman is killed by a shark. And immediately Brody jumps into action, closes down the beaches, writes a letter to the coroner's office, like picks up signs, has signs made, beaches closed, and... As he's walking back from the beach after putting up these signs, uh, Mayor Vaughn pulls onto the pier and gets out of a car with a bunch of his cronies and basically, like, bullies Brody into reopening the beaches and is kind of threatening him in some ways, saying, like, you know, this is your first weekend and you really don't want to be doing this right now. And is are you sure this is the decision you want to make? And what authority do you actually have to close down these beaches? And he's immediately trying to intimidate this guy. Well, not only that, but he has the coroner there. Yeah. And Brody's like, dude, I just got off the phone with you. You said this was a shark attack. Yeah, what the fuck? And he's like, well, I think it's a boat, boat attack now. Yeah, he's got phone. everybody in his Yeah, pocket. so he's like, you know, bribed or threatened the coroner into literally amending. He's already written the autopsy report. Yeah. And established the cause of death. Yeah. And now he's having him amend it. And then Hooper comes in and looks at this thing and then, like, straight up looks at the coroner and is like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. and like, you know, you think this is a fucking propeller? There's no fucking propeller took a cookie cutter bite out of this fucking woman. Yeah. You know, like, he's pissed. Absolutely. And he has no problem confronting Mayor Vaughn and he screams at him at one point, like, you're so worried about your goddamn summer. You're not going to have a summer if you don't take care of this problem. And again, like it's so relevant to what's going on right now. We have a worldwide pandemic that is just ripping through the world, especially the United States. And, you know, understandably, everybody's anxious to get back out there and get back to normal. And understandably, like business owners are suffering and they need their livelihoods. But a lot of people and like leadership especially don't seem to understand or care that if we jump into this now and push everything forward now without solving the problem, None of that's going to matter because we're fucked. Steven Spielberg is good at taking things that are literally timeless. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's a timeless recurrence of politicians and business officials putting their needs above public safety and yeah. the best uh, interest of the public. You know, and, and that's why we're talking, what, 45 years later? Yeah. And it's just as relevant today as it was then. Yeah, so crazy. So I just, I had to bring up Maravon real quick just because it was, it was almost uncanny watching all of his, yeah. <laughs> his scenes and true, his behavior. True politician. Oh man. That role was so well written. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, since I know, I know that this is one of your favorite horror movies and what were some of your very favorite moments or scenes that you're just like excited to revisit every time you watch this? I'd say, I honestly think my favorite part of the movie is really the second half. The first half's kind of a hoot and it builds the whole thing up, but mm -hmm. pretty much from the moment all three guys are stuck on that boat and are out trying like this Moby Dick-esque plot develops, mm -hmm. it's just such a tight quarters and it's really intense and there's nowhere to run and hide and you're having three very different people living and working under stressful circumstances 
in a small space. So there's a lot of like tension and development there that I love really. And then obviously you have just intense scene after intense scene after intense scene of the the three guys trying to take on this shark. Yeah. And um, you know, from the moment the shark like starts battering the boat, I think that's where it gets really fucking off the charts. But even like the like you said, that's really where you get the first shot of Jaws. Yeah. You know, so like the moment you see that shark, you're like, holy fuck. And then they're trying to take this thing down and Quinn is able to like harpoon it with these 55 gallon barrel that are supposed to try to buoy it up. And um, you think they're making some kind of headway and it's just pissing the thing off. Yeah. To the point where it just like when it hits that boat and rams into it and starts ruining its integrity so that it's leaking now and they're going down and you're just like, you have this small boat that's probably about the length of this shark and now it's damaged and water's leaking in and this thing's fucking pissed off yeah and they're out in the middle of nowhere and quint true to his character is so arrogant that when brody goes to call for help he breaks the radio and so now they're fucked nobody knows where they're at they can't call for help and it's just three dudes against this beast and uh, the odds are dwindling against them by the second. Yeah. And it's just insanely intense, like, uh, is, constantly. Yeah. I was actually doing a, like, so one of the fun facts about the movie, which you told me about before, was those barrels were not originally written into it, but I think they're super intense because it gives you, like, this visualization. And sometimes it's more frightening not to see the thing and yeah. just to see the indication of it. And so Jaws, the mechanical Jaws, was notoriously... A piece of shit. I so wish I could have worked on that thing. Oh, man. I know. <laughs> oh, man. That would have been so awesome. It they not... called him Bruce. His yeah. name was Bruce. Bruce. Man, Bruce would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it was a notoriously a piece of shit and constantly breaking down. So that's why they had to do a lot of those like barrel scenes and stuff like that to yeah. build the suspense. And I feel like it works so well because when you're seeing those things get dragged under, every time you think you've like gained an inch... And this thing is just dragging him under. And I was actually, you know, I've seen this multiple times. And every time you see it drag down all three of them, that's when you basically know, like, you guys are fucked. Yeah. There's nothing that you have in your arsenal that's going to stop this thing. And it seems really intense. And I was actually doing the math on it of how much force the shark is having to battle against those three buoys. Because it seems, to a human, it seems super significant. Yeah. You know, There's but the they... Busters on it, too. Oh, there is? Yeah. Oh, okay. I probably have seen that, but I, I missed it. But I was, like, doing some quick math on it. So, like, one of those barrels to pull that thing underwater yeah. is the equivalent of, like, about 460 pounds. Which is, again, to a human, that's an insane amount. Yeah. Right? And then so three of those is, you know, about 1,400 pounds. But they say that Jaws is estimated to be about, I think it was two tons. I think he said three tons. Three tons. That's yeah. what it was. Three tons. So about 6,000 pounds. It's about 6,000 pounds. So that's about 22% of his body weight, which is not very much. And I was actually thinking, you know, for a 180-pound person, 22% uh, of their body weight is only 40 pounds. Okay. So that's basically, so it's, not... it's the equivalent of like a 180-pound person putting on a 40-pound backpack and walking upstairs or, you know, trying to walk up a ladder. Oh, wow. You know, like it's, you feel it, but it's not nearly as significant as you might think it is. Yeah, from what I heard about the Mythbusters episode that they did on that, they actually 
there were like at least two or three episodes based around things that happened in Jaws. And uh, one of them was like, can a shark, a great white shark, actually pull down three of those barrels and keep them underwater? So what they concluded was, yes, the shark could definitely pull them down like that, but they wouldn't actually be able to keep them down for as long as the shark and the yeah. did. But they could definitely do that. That's probably, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, Because the further down you go, it's going to be a greater amount of force and it's yeah. constantly pulling. And the other thing I was thinking about is the only thing that's holding it into the shark is the fucking harpoon. So you yeah. imagine you got 450, 60 pounds that are trying to pull it out. At some point, it's just going to rip the fucking thing. Exactly. Interesting. So the second half of the movie is just like the whole second half. Is yeah, just I think where so. It's for you. That's so for interesting because sure. for oh, me. Plus Quint dying. And oh, then yeah. So brutal. There's the scene where uh, Hooper goes down to the cage. Which, oh, it's so you know, crazy. You had uh, Quint warn him, which is like one of the great lines from... He's first egging Hooper on where he like sees him loading all his shit into the dock mm-hmm. and Quint's looking at him. He's like, cage go in the water. You go in the water. Shark go in the water. <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts singing his little song. <laughs> Farewell and adieu. <laughs> My first fattest lady. I love that A lot that of shit. good songs in this yeah. movie. But yeah, Hooper goes down there and fucking Jaws is attacking this thing. And there's actually real shark footage there. Yeah, I saw that. That's so crazy. Yeah. yeah. I guess Steven Spielberg like didn't wasn't too hot on doing that, mm-hmm. but there was uh, one of the production guys or the uh, producers was like, we have to use real shark footage. Yeah, it's so funny how this movie was so just ridden with problems during production. It was problem after problem, so much so that the crew started calling it flaws. <laughs> <laughs> like it was a pain in the ass. In between the shark constantly breaking down, Robert Shaw being a drunk, belligerent asshole. The production took over 100 days longer than it was supposed to. Yeah. And I got to the point where uh, the very last day of filming was going to be the scene where they blow up the shark. And Steven Spielberg had actually heard rumors that a mutinous crew was going to (laughs) prank him somehow. So he was on a fucking plane back home on the last day. He wasn't (laughs) even going to give them the chance. He was like, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. This is like, I'm washing my hands of it. (laughs) And it ended up being like one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. It was like, I heard it was 300%. Over budget. Oh my god. Yeah, it was just nothing but problems for them. But it had all kind of, it was a very unique movie in that it broke and established a lot of boundaries and precedents that no other movie did. Yeah. Like a few of those that uh, I was looking at was that it, A, kind of before Jaws, and Steven Spielberg actually said, like, I was pretty sure that was the last movie I was ever going to make. Wow. Because of how over budget it went. Yeah. It literally caught, there was like the budget that he, I, I didn't get the actual figure of how much it was, but basically it was on par with like those epic films like, like Spartacus and Cleopatra and like the, the really high production films that almost bankrupted the, you know, film studios. Wow. Um, so they were big, big risk and his film was not supposed to do that and it did. And so he's like, if this thing does not work, I'm out of the business forever. Obviously, it was a wild success. And so that A showed film companies that if we spend more money on movies, we make more money. Yeah. And so it basically opened up bigger budgets for more films, for one. And then it basically invented the summer blockbuster. Because before that, summertime was actually considered the downtime for uh, movie theaters. Right, because everyone was outside. Yeah. And... There was also the aspect that the way that they roll movies out was more kind of like in like slow patterns, like there'd be a movie here, a movie there, a movie there. But with that, and then also uh, timing wise, 
it became more popular to have air conditioning in movie theaters. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like that perfect storm or that tipping point where people wanted to go to movie theaters now because it was cooler in there than it was outside and it was a high production thing. So that basically developed a, it invented the summer blockbuster of like having big movies come out during the summer and to also, oh, that was the other thing was major releases. Because yeah. before that, they would, that's what I was trying to get at. They would slowly release the movie basically across the country. Yeah. You know, and so theaters here, theaters there, theater there. And it would, you know, take quite a while for it to reach everybody. But for this movie, they had it do a massive release all at once. So everyone went out and see it. And it was the first movie to get um, TV advertising. So they were like advertising it like crazy beforehand. And doing that massive release. And so they saw the biggest, it was the, at the time, it was the most successful movie ever made. Wow. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's fucking great. You know, but you can also imagine that it's the summertime and it was right around the same time that the movie was taking place and everyone was ready for the beaches. So it was really just an unprecedented movie and a whole cornucopia of ways. Yeah. And it also inspired so many other incredible horror movies one of them was actually alien ridley scott cited jaws as a huge inspiration for alien and he he, it was basically like jaws in space like jaws was only on screen for four minutes the xenomorph was only on screen for four minutes it's this isolated environment where people are being just picked off one by one by this unstoppable predator i love that yeah and like i know that those are two of your favorite horror movies but yeah like alien was heavily inspired by jaws we wouldn't have it without that yeah now I like it even more. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. It's also so interesting that you said the last half of the movie was your favorite because for me, the first half was my favorite. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it is. Like, I'll, it's one of the reasons for my rating. I'm giving this movie a fantastic rating, of course. But, you know, the only issue I have with this movie is that it's two hours long and it feels like it's two hours long to me. When I think about it, I can't think of anything that would that could really be cut from it or that needs to be cut from it. But I do find myself every time I watch it after that first hour or so, like after all of the initial attacks and all this stuff with Brody and the mayor and Alex being killed and these deaths and the, you know, Hooper being called in, trying to figure out what this predator is, what's killing all these people. It just kind of slows down a little bit for me. And I find myself getting just a little bit bored each time I watch it in like that middle part until it kind of picks up again when they're out on the ocean and the shark actually shows up again. I think that's a completely fair assessment. Do you? Okay. Cause yeah. I, I always feel like I'm being a little too harsh on this movie, but I, you know, I love a slow movie. I love a slow burn, but I, I do find myself each time I watch this, just really feeling how long it is. Like this time around, we paused it at some point to refill on snacks and get up for a minute. And I was like, Oh shit, it's only halfway over. Like it feels like it's been, a full movie at this point. I feel like it kind of just the same thing that um, Tombstone does, where it's almost like two separate movies. It is. And the transition is not as smooth as it could be. Yeah. Like, it almost, because it, you know, it kind of has that ramp up, and it builds, and you're really into it. And then, instead of just kind of having, like, a little dip and in going into it, I feel like it's a fairly, you know, kind of like a roller coaster, smooth, you're going down, down, yes. down, and then it picks up again. I do love the initial transition, which I, I think of this as the last moment of part one. And this is after everything's gone down, after people have died, and they decide, okay, we have to go kill this shark. And it's just the shot of Brody staring out over the vast ocean, mm. thinking like, I'm going to get you, motherfucker. And to me, that, I actually, I, one of my favorite scenes in that, in that transition is when they all get on the boat 
and they um, pan up through Quint's little kill castle. Oh, yeah. And they're looking through the, the jaws of a great white shark, and they're filming the orca go out to sea. Oh, that's a great shot. I love that. Yeah. That's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. That's a great shot. So good. Yeah, that's really that's really the only complaint I have, and it's not even really a complaint or anything that's wrong with the movie. It's more of just a personal preference thing. It just feels a little bit long to me, and I find myself kind of getting antsy in the middle, but then it picks up again, and I forget all about that. I think that's a completely fair assessment. Okay. I do want to throw in one last little thing yeah. before we wrap this up, and that's just that this movie or this book and this movie was actually inspired by true events really yeah and um a lot of people don't know that but there's a and there's a good documentary in this too i think it was by the history channel but there is a um something that happened from july 1st to 12th in 1916 and it was dubbed the 12 days of horror oh shit and um there was this area i think it was near like new jersey or whatever and there were four people died and another was wounded and five New Jersey shark attacks within less than two weeks. Damn. And basically there was this small channel. Like it was almost considered like a river channel where water flooded into. And it would go up and down with the tide. And it was a shark frenzy, right? And like this is probably considered the second worst shark attack in recorded history. Wow. Because of, you know, the events that took place. And this would have been analyzed like crazy. This actually spurred a whole string of deaths of sharks because they basically did what happened in Jaws where they just went out and started killing as many sharks as they possibly could to, to catch the monster. And initially there was a lot of speculation that it was, you know, post-speculation that it was a bull shark, but it actually looks like it was probably a great white. There's a lot of evidence for it, and the strongest evidence is that, A, when, um, well, part of the reason why people thought it was a bull shark is because the channel that it was swimming in was kind of shallow, but all of the attacks happened near midnight where tide was in, and the channel was completely full, and it would have been ample enough room for a great white to get in, and the attacks on the people that they found were large enough bites to indicate that it was a larger shark than a bull shark. And not too long after those events, they actually caught a great white shark with human remains in his stomach. Oh, shit. So most of the community thinks that it was probably that shark and that there was... They don't know if it was multiple. Anytime that there's been multiple shark attacks in a single spot, it's almost a guarantee that it wasn't the same shark. It's just that there's was shark activity. Yeah. But this is just like one of those weird situations where... It does seem like the one and only time there was a strong possibility of there being a rogue shark. Oh, damn. And it being a great white shark that attacked and killed, well, attacked five people, killed four. That's so terrifying. In a short amount of time in wow. July. So I thought that was pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Well, not awesome. I'm sure that was pretty shitty for those people. Yeah, but it's, it's awesome that we got Jaws out of it. Yeah. So with that being said... I absolutely love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. I love Great White Sharks, and that's probably one of the main reasons why I love it. It's like my lifelong goal to swim with Great White Sharks. I just, I love these creatures. They terrify the hell out of me, and I have such great respect for them. I do have to agree with you that there are, it's not, a, I, I can't call this a 100% perfect movie, because there is that, like, transition area that's not as smooth. Yeah, but it's pretty for damn me, close. For I'm going to call that 11 and a half. All right, nice. That's a healthy score. I thought for sure this was going to be a 12 for you. I, you know, I was initially, and yeah. I, the more I thought about it from a more critical lens, like if it's just pure joy, yeah. like if, if it's just 100% for me, it's a 12 yeah. I love this fucking movie. Yeah. But I can objectively look at it and say, 
you know, there's there's some inconsistencies or something that's not quite right there. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic score. Mine was very close to that and really only for the reason I said, just because it drags a little bit for me, I find myself getting a little bit antsy in the middle part there. I, I gave it an 11 out of 12. Nice. So pretty, pretty close. Not bad at all. It is an almost perfect movie. I absolutely love watching it. I have so much fun watching it. And it's it's kind of become a yearly tradition for us to watch this movie in the summer. Oh, yeah. Right before we're on the beach. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. As far as the beer to pair with this, I think we're both on the same page. There's a brewery called uh, Coronado Brewery, and they make a beer called Mermaid Red. Yes. And it's a great red, and it's also, I like it, I actually don't like reds as often. I know you love them. Yeah. Um, I don't like them as often, and this beer has a bit of a, a bitterness to it. It's hoppy. It's a little hoppy, Yeah. and um, I think that's perfect for this movie, because you have, like, the, it's the mermaid, it's a red, it's all the blood, but then there's also just, like, that sting involved yes. with it. Yeah, immediately after we finished this, I was like, this has to be the mermaid red. That would go perfectly with this movie. I had that in my mind the moment we started the movie. Me too, yeah. Yeah, That's. I feel like that's the only choice. Absolutely. Like I said, if you, especially if you're an IPA drinker yeah. and you don't normally like reds, you'll probably like this one. Definitely. And if you are a red drinker, but you're okay with a little bit of, you know, a little bit more of a bitter beer. I don't, I, I want to say it's strong bitter, but a little bit. A little I feel like it's got would, a little something for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone will enjoy this, especially if you're watching Jaws. Yeah, it's a great beer. That's a good pick. Well, this was my pick. I enjoyed it. I had a great time. What are we watching this week? I had such a good time watching Jaws that I really didn't want to let go of that good time and watch a downer. So I had a couple movies in mind. One of them was a super fun movie and the other one was something I haven't seen, but it's known for being bleak and brutal. So I decided to go with the fun option this time. So for our next episode, we will be covering a movie that is so near and dear to my heart. We are going to be watching Cabin in the Woods. Nice. I'm, I'm ready to give that one another go. I, I really hope that after this viewing, it's going to be what, your third time seeing it? Yeah. I think the first time I might have fallen asleep a little bit. Okay. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping now that you know what you know about that movie and about horror movies, like, that you'll see what is so wonderful about Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, I think I'll have more of an appreciation so for great. it. It's so great. For sure. <laughs> I can't wait to cover it. Yeah, I'm ready to... To give it another go. It's a good time. It's just, it's a treat. Awesome. If, if you haven't seen it, please check it out. It is a one-of-a-kind experience. So you can, of course, follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. And if you have questions for us, movie or beer suggestions, or just want to say hi, you can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. And if you're currently listening to our show on Apple Podcasts, if you could just take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to our show, it really helps us out. It helps us appear on those searches, helps horror fans find us faster. Uh, just keep in mind that if you do leave a review, make sure to keep it G-rated because otherwise the reviews will get pulled and they won't show up on the feed. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been an absolute blast and I can't wait to watch Cabin in the Woods and I can't wait for you to watch Cabin in the Woods again. <laughs> and until next time, keep it spooky. Cheers. Cheers.